All right. Well, thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Practice Makes Podcast with our season, The History of... Dot, dot, dot. How are you doing, Tyler? (laughs) Oh, thank you for asking. I am a little bit chilly. It's kind of cold. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little cold here too. It's kind of rainy, so maybe something to warm us up will be listening to the nice history of the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah, what's that? So the Muslim Brotherhood is a political movement or a political party that exists throughout the Middle East, but principally in Egypt, hmm. and. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood has been having, has had a lot of ups and downs over the decades. Uh, they even managed to take power in Egypt under the president, uh, Morsi, who was unfortunately outed in a coup by the military. But so essentially. Is it, sorry, what is it? It's a, a group that is opposing the government or? It would be like the opposition, the main opposition group within Egypt. And a lot of people, including the Egyptian government, would classify them as terrorists. Ah. But essentially, they adhere to a conservative uh, Islamic ideology, but with also the interests of seizing power and uh, developing the uh the muslim world and so i guess i would have to we'd have to go back quite a quite a few centuries to give kind of a background on the whole thing in the middle east the islamic world uh for centuries had been dominated by the ottoman empire which was principally a turkish empire uh that was the dominant force in the middle east and because of its geographic location of uh, being between Europe and East Asia, uh, they were the kind of intermediary between all of the trade that would take place between Europe and Asia. Oh, wow. And this kind of got under the skin of the Europeans because they wanted to have a more direct access to the goods and markets of, of East Asia. So this, uh, actually inadvertently led to what we know of as the age of exploration. So think of like Christopher Columbus and uh, mm. uh, Cortez and all of these expeditions because they were trying to, the Europeans were trying to circumnavigate the Ottoman empire and find another way to access Asia, East mm. Asia. So from, so this led to a lot of development in uh technology in science and economics and uh by the end of the 18th century it got to be a point where there's really no other way to say it like europe was a lot more advanced than the uh the islamic world in terms of uh, technology uh resources military power and it got to a point where many Islamic academics were starting to see this uh, this kind of divide that was existing between the two worlds, and you could think of it as maybe kind of a cold world, a uh, cold war of the 
of the era where they realized that the Islamic world had to make some changes and make some developments in order to be able to compete more with the Europeans. Hmm. And so there were a lot of different ways of how people thought of doing this. Some people wanted uh, some things like uh, radical Islamic movements like Wahhabism and Salafism uh, came into being uh, as a response to this. Then there were other types of movements that were completely secular and non-religious. Um, it kind of just depended on the area and the time. But um, inspired from all of this was the person who would eventually become the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, Hassan al-Bana. And he was born in the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, to give uh, some more background, at this time, he was born in Egypt. And at this time in Egypt, this was when um, the um, the canal was being built. Oh my gosh, what's the, what, the name what of was it? Billing, what was being built? The Suez Canal. Ah. Yeah, mm-hmm. so the Suez Canal was a massive... Uh, project. It was very revolutionary because it linked the Mediterranean Sea with um, the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. So it created, you had to circumnavigate all of Africa in order to get to India before then, but now it it opened up a lot. Hmm. But when the canal was being uh, constructed, there were lots of mostly British and French uh, engineers, technicians, diplomats, and just civilian workers that uh, ended up immigrating into Egypt, hmm. like during the construction of the canal. And what ended up happening was on each side of the river, there ended up being uh, a European side and uh, Egyptian Arab side. And this ended up, you could see a very stark contrast between the two worlds where the European side would have uh, restaurants, uh, dance halls, uh, theaters, and modern chic clothing from London and Paris. And the uh, Egyptian side was more where the laborers who were doing the hard manual work were working on um, you know, building the canal, and it was more impoverished. It's always the way it works, isn't it? Yeah, so this, for for Hassan al-Banal, this served as really like a, a very stark um, visual contrast between the two worlds. And it also represented, um, you know, in his mind, like the very real presence of European colonialism mm. in in the uh, Islamic world. And, you know, the he would see his fellow Egyptians, they were... Uh, struggling to learn English and learn French, and they were trying to adopt European customs uh, just to end up being treated like a kind of underclass beneath the uh, beneath the European kind of overlords. Mm. I guess there's no other way to put it. <laughs> so to to put it mildly, this was upsetting to him. Yeah. What year was this? This was around the 1920s. I'm sorry, I don't have an exact date. I can't quite remember, but this is when Hassan al-Banal started really noticing all of these these contrasts and these differences. And this is when he started really getting more into activism. Hmm. And so what he started doing was um, he 
he formed, uh, I don't think it was called the Muslim Brotherhood in the beginning, but he formed basically like a, a Boy Scouts group <laughs> for young boys. Oh. And the point was for him to be able to teach younger generations, young boys, uh, their Islamic heritage, the history, and the past glory of, um, you know, the Arab and Ottoman empires. And it was basically to teach them to be proud of their heritage and not to be submissive to, um, to the European, uh, invaders. And so he would be giving, uh, talks and, uh, lectures to the, the young men. And what ended up happening was that people were so interested in what he had to say that even the parents, uh, the fathers of the children were coming in and listening in on the, uh, the conversations. And they, it grew so much interest that he ended up coming up with a, an adults chapter hmm. of the organization. And gradually it just started growing and growing from there. And they ended up building, uh, clinics, uh, fitness centers, um, pharmacies. And that would eventually end up becoming the, like the infrastructure that would lead to the formation of the Muslim Brotherhood. Wow. So it's an actual place. Well, I guess it's like a physical network, or at least it was like it had a lot of assets. It, I guess you could think of it as like um, like kind of a church or like a religious uh, charity organization. But it's not destructive, so it's not technically a cult. <laughs> well, they're they're. We're kind of, we're getting to that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, what essentially the, essentially the core principles of the Muslim Brotherhood was modernization without westernization. It was, you know, uh, exit out of the, this kind of submission that the Islamic world has, um, towards the Western world, uh, advance technologically, advance socially, um, develop, like save the economy, help people out, but do it without adopting Western customs and abandoning Islam mm. as a religion. Yeah. And um, eventually, you know, this, the organization got so big and because of the, you know, the, the fitness centers, the hospitals, the support network that they had managed uh, to build, they were getting wide popular support from the public in, in Egypt. Over the course and so, of like, how long did this? Uh, it started really taking off like as early as the 1930s. And where they started to build this, where the infrastructure really started to take off. I'm a little fuzzy with the dates, unfortunately. Okay. So yeah, unfortunately this is where the, things start to get a little bit violent, mm. uh, quite a bit violent because, uh, -oh. uh the gov there starts to be a lot of tension between the, the British, the occupying British forces, the government and the Muslim brotherhood, because they start to become basically the second most powerful entity within Egypt after the military. Mm. And so starting in, I think the 19, late 1930s, 1940s, 
there starts to be like a, a lot of uh, assassinations, uh, killings. The um, the prime minister of Egypt is even assassinated by a Brotherhood member, and so this it all comes to a head about in uh, 1948 when the Egyptian government. Uh, basically banned the Brotherhood and they arrested a lot of their key leaders and confiscated their um their assets, like their offices, their their gyms, their like everything that was an asset to the mother the Muslim Brotherhood was um was basically confiscated. And so this was basically the beginning of um like a long period of uh of underground networking for the Muslim Brotherhood and a lot of violent resistance. And uh, it would lead to another assassination of another president. The Muslim, so yeah, the Muslim Brotherhood en- entered into a tumultuous period over several decades of resistance against the government being cracked down, having members arrested and executed. And it even led to uh another the another president the egyptian president being assassinated sadat hmm. um so that's three now three uh presidents assassinated no so far we have a prime minister assassinated uh we have the president assassinated and uh this wasn't the muslim brotherhood that did it but uh there was a coup in egypt that overthrew the democratic government and led to a military dictatorship, which um, still exists to today. We wouldn't be able to do that in the United States, would we? A coup? There's no coup large enough. I don't think so, because, I mean, there's a lot of anxiety today in the United States about some kind of a coup taking place, but I don't think that it I, I, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of tension and anxiety going around, but in my personal opinion i don't think the um i don't think all the mechanisms are in place huh. like what are the i mechanisms? don't well i you would have to have basically the the military is the one who's going to decide a coup and i think oh. the case with the military in the united states they're very like faithful to the constitution and to the democratic process and they don't they don't really play as big of a role in um, politics as many other militaries in other parts of the world do. How so? I mean, these, I mean, in, on one hand in the United States, um, the military is, it's, I think it's written in the constitution that it's has to be run by civilians. So at the head of every, um, military institution, there's civilians making the decisions and calling the shots. Whereas, um, in, in other countries, you would literally have the head of state being a general, uh-huh. you know, like just to give you an example in Libya, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, the, the leader, he was, he was a colonel in the military. Okay. So, and a, a lot of the time, the state, or the the government and the military are pretty much one and the same. Whereas in the United States, they seem to be maintaining a a separation of powers. They keep the two pretty well separate, but I mean, never say never, but it really complicates things in a lot of ways. Cause 
like you're talking about um like vote of no confidence that seems so simple compared to like what we would have to do here to get anything to change like systematically um it's actually not very well known but there was like a conspiracy to um get to have a coup in the United States uh there was a general in the marines his name was smedley butler and uh yeah funny name <laughs> he was a really but he was a really decorated uh general in the marines he won the medal of honor twice i think and he was um he was actually approached like in the 1930s it was a pretty tumultuous time in the united states as well like we were in a depression and um there was there wasn't a lot of that's one thing that is like a good recipe for coups is a division among uh elites or wealthy people mm. like within the ruling class and at the time in the united states there was kind of two factions among the ruling class it was the people who were supporting things like the new deal under fdr who were saying that there had to be certain concessions that had to be made in order to save like the the capitalist democracy system that we had and other people who didn't want to have anything to do with that they didn't want to give any kind of um concessions to the population or make um like make new programs like so social security didn't exist uh, up until the 1930s uh but anyway like a group of like wealthy industrialists and bankers they'd approached smedley butler at the time when the new deal was about to come and they'd asked him if he would overthrow the government and basically install a military dictatorship and <laughs> luckily for us he refused and he testified about it in Congress, but I don't know. That doesn't seem like people ever talk about that, but we, we came pretty close. Wow. That would have been possible. <laughs> I think it would have been. Yeah. At the time oh. things were pretty tumultuous, Huh. but, um, going back to Egypt, <laughs> uh, eventually the Muslim brotherhood kind of wakes up after, kind of hitting the wall over and over again with their opposition to the government, realizing that, you know, violence isn't going to solve any, anything and they need to really change tactics. And essentially they end up renouncing violence. So which, uh, the, the brothership, the Muslim brotherhood, brotherhood, sorry. And you know, the, there's a lot of people who don't, uh, agree with this and there's people who end up splitting off with them. Uh, some factions end up becoming the group, uh, Hamas that we know in, uh, Gaza and Palestine. What do they um, do? They're, they're basically a similar ideology to the Muslim Brotherhood, but they were willing to use armed force in order to take power. Oh, okay. Uh, that's a whole other dynamic with like the Israeli occupation and stuff, but that could be for another day, another video. <laughs> yeah. Um, but essentially, um, they end up, uh, renouncing violence and, uh, what takes place is the, in 2011, we have the Arab spring, which, uh, again, that could, <laughs> that could be its own video, <laughs> but the Arab spring is essentially like a, a series of protests and even outright revolutions that took place across the Arab world. 
because people got fed up with their their quality of life uh, with not having more democratic representation. And so essentially in every country in the Middle East, there were uh, strikes, riots, uh, demonstrations, and even governments being overthrown. And one of those governments that ended up falling was the military dictatorship in Egypt. In and so what year? 2011. 2011? <laughs> yeah, this is pretty recent history. Wow. It, yeah, we had a military dictatorship. Uh, well, we still have a military dictatorship, unfortunately, because what ended yeah. up happening was um, they held elections for the first time in Egypt, and the Muslim Brotherhood ended up winning. And yeah. um, now this is where, well, they Dude. were the they were the largest form of opposition in Egypt. So people vote. Well, this was the first time people voted, but they organized elections. And um, there were other political parties, but essentially there were things that you could consider to be like more secular, like left wing. But the vote was like too split up. And so the the group that had the most, like the biggest concentration of votes was the Muslim Brotherhood. Hmm. So President Morsi ends up taking power. And this is where there would be a lot of controversy because like, especially with it, people in Egypt, like um, there's like basically two narratives. It's that um, the Muslim brotherhood really started to do overreaching of power and they themselves were starting to become a dictatorship. Mm. Whereas, you know, other people simply see it as just the election being annulled essentially, because what ended up happening was um a lot of people refused to even call it a coup, but I mean, that's for all intents and purposes. That's what it was. Uh, the military, the military said, well, the, they're abusing their power and there's enough like popular support behind us. So we are going to overthrow this government. We're going to put more scene jail. Uh, we're going to arrest even more members of the Muslim Brotherhood and outlaw them and declare them a terrorist group. What were they doing? That, uh, I'm not too familiar with the details, to be perfectly honest, but there were like certain laws that were being adopted, like things that were seen as too, like maybe too conservative. There were, I think they were trying to make uh, modifications to the constitution, if I'm not remember, if I'm not mistaken. Like, th like they're basically being accused of trying to like cancel democracy, like all over again. And become like their own form of a dictatorship. Hmm. Now, there's a lot of people that say, you know, the best way to find out if they're trying to become a dictatorship is to wait until the actual elections take place. And if people are unhappy, then you could just vote them out. Because if you just keep annulling elections because you're not happy with the way people are ruling, then you're by definition, you're not going to have democracy. Yeah. Um, that's basically a dictatorship already, right? Yes. Well, that's that's where the argument comes in. It's like, well, why don't you just wait until the elections come up? Because Egypt, I think they have a, a system similar to the United States. Like they have the votes for the presidency and then they have the votes for like the parliament. Mm -hmm. So people, they make the argument they could have just voted them out in parliament and then they wouldn't have had like the power to legislate or to... uh really do much of anything 
And that's the that's the principle of a democracy. If you think someone's doing a bad job, you just vote them out. Yeah. Rather than throw them out. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, they're overthrown. Uh, Muslim Brotherhood has declared a terrorist organization. And ever since then, we have had a return to the Egyptian um, military dictatorship under President Sisi. And essentially, you know, the whole revolution that took place under the Arab Spring was basically for nothing. Um, <laughs> the Muslim Brotherhood has been driven underground again. And from the latest, uh, latest news I've seen, that there's no challenge to the status quo for the time being, but don't, don't ever count. I guess the moral of the story is don't ever count the Muslim Brotherhood uh, out because they, they'll, they're full of surprises. Yeah. Why is it so hard to hold on to a religious, like cultural background while still becoming industrialized? And like, why is the European movement across the world so powerful in like weeding that out yeah i guess it depends on how you could look at it but yet seems to be there's uh, i i guess you could call this a critique of capitalism itself it's that yeah um you know in a globalized world where um things are viewed like very materialistically like just considering things like the GDP, um, developing the latest uh, trendy gear like an iPhone or getting people to wear the same Nike shoes and things like that. When you live in a system like that, uh, things like culture and religion, they tend to get in the way. They're seen more as liabilities and obstacles to give an example, in the Islamic world, you people don't eat pork. So mm -hmm. if you have even basic things like dietary restrictions, then that inhibits businesses from selling certain products. Uh, if you have people that want to dress in a certain traditional way, well, then it makes it harder to sell Nike shoes. So I think that's yeah. on an institutional level. I think the people, you know, principally in the in I would say capitalism and globalism, it stems primarily from like the West or the United States, just from like a, a commercial or institutional interest. They don't really want to maintain these kind of cultural differences and unique uh, style modes of, of life in the different places around the world. It's, it's much more easier if everyone is homogenous and, belongs to the exact same kind of consumer culture. Yeah. I guess then there's no way to kind of mesh the two together, saying, like, let's all just live happily together. It just isn't going to happen because one can't live with the other. You can't have capitalism and culture, like traditional culture. Well, I mean, you. that's essentially what the Muslim Brotherhood was trying to do was trying to uh, like bring in all the, the positive changes, like a better standard of living and better, mm -hmm. like more comfortable uh, 
a comfortable lifestyle that comes with innovation and technology without giving up their traditions and their culture and the religion. I guess I would have to say it's not necessarily, um, that's not necessarily uh, impossible, but I guess I would have to. It just kind of goes against the grain of, of like the most powerful kind of empires in the world, like um, even Nike and Apple and stuff like that. It kind of goes against the grain to, to not be homogenous. Yeah. It's, like it, it's, possible you know it's just like it doesn't feel quite as easy as it is to just conform <laughs> yeah it's, i mean just looking at it from a capitalist perspective um things like states you know countries you know ethnic identities languages religions these are all you know these are liabilities these are obstacles these are things that have to be removed because we need everyone to be exactly the same and if there's different it's a lot easier if all the decisions are being made like in new york city or and exported across the world because of you know you have rivaling or competing institutions somewhere else saying like well we don't want here then that that prohibits profit yeah i was thinking of like um how people have been tricked into being racist because if they think that there are people worse off than them, then they won't see how much capitalism is hurting them as, uh, but just because they're white, they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. But the actual, like they say, keep your eyes on the enemy, the real enemy, enemy. And so I think a lot of what capitalism does is try to shift that focus. They try to find you a new enemy that isn't them. And they're so good at PR and they're so good at marketing that they've sold a lot of people the idea of racism. And then they just grow up with that idea in their minds. And they're actually not benefiting from it at all. There's no benefit to being racist They've just been sold that idea somehow. Yeah, I mean, in the past, racism was used um, like as, as a justification for the colonialism that took place, like in Africa and in Asia. And it, it is a useful tool for keeping people distracted from who's really exploiting them and taking advantage of them. Right. You have to, if you want to maintain power, you have to come up with all kinds of clever ways to divide and conquer. It's hard to keep your eyes on it because it's a constant moving target. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's like the Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. <laughs> yeah, that's such a brilliant metaphor. We went from the Muslim Brotherhood to talking about the Wizard of Oz. I know we have to. <laughs> that's the only thing I, I I have to. You have to make it make sense to someone that is as unintelligent as I oh, am stop. because <laughs> that's how I, or I guess ignorant. Um, but I guess I would say what I like about the story of the Muslim brotherhood is I really think, um, you know, you can, you can agree or disagree with like their religious philosophy and everything, but I really, um, liked Hassan al-Banal. Uh, mm -hmm. I think he's interesting as a person. Um, he ended up being assassinated, uh, in 1949, by the way, 
that was that really that oh. really ended up devastating the movement. But yeah, but then it, I mean, it lived on to you said something was still happening in like two thousand. Yeah, that still exists technically, and they even have chapters like in Kuwait and uh, in other countries. But I I just think uh, Hassan al Banal. It, it he's an interesting person because it kind of shows what pure willpower is able to do because this is someone who's not a wealthy or influential person. I believe he was born into a pretty poor family and he was able to essentially form this whole movement and this organization out of nothing. Just his desire to see things change and be shaped in the way that he uh, envisioned. And I think like I like I said, maybe people don't like the the message of an organization like the Muslim Brotherhood, but I think that their example can be you know you you can take them as an example to perhaps create better changes in the world around you, where you can see the power of like mobilizing people and creating your own organizations and institutions. It can really challenge the status quo and the people in power. Yeah, at least put pressure on them. Yeah, even though, unfortunately, it ended up being largely, it's been largely a failure so far. Well, maybe <laughs> for some people that's a fortunate thing because a lot of people don't like the Muslim Brotherhood. But um, I, I think, I, I guess I, I would just have to say, like, I think that kind of a, uh, it would be an inch, a good model to follow if you wanted to implement positive changes that you wanted to see in the United States or wherever you happen to be living. Um, it's It shows the power of people and the power of determination. Yeah, something about organizing things and making them into um, a group makes it a little bit scary because there generally ends up being a couple people or maybe just one person at the top. You know, like in cult situations, which if you hadn't, haven't noticed, I'm obviously obsessed with that lately. But um, in a way, it's also important and necessary to organize. So, like, there has to be some level of organization. Like, maybe there's a, a good balance that has to be found with it because um, just protesting and getting out in the streets and in big groups of people isn't seeming to do enough right now in the United States. Like no one is listening that is in power that no one's doing. Anything. Well, this is if I were in the United States and I were to be on the ground during those protests, one thing that people should be doing is exchanging phone numbers and email addresses mm. because uh, getting out in the streets and manifesting uh, like protesting, I, I, you know, that's a, that's a powerful Thing to do, but it needs to come with real concrete organizing and the formation of groups and institutions. And you can see that this is a lot of this, there's a lot of resistance against that uh, in the way that our society is structured. It discourages getting together in real life. Now with the coronavirus, everyone's staying at home. I mean, people are mostly interacting with each other on the internet. We stay at home and watch Netflix. And so this kind of structurally it really prevents people from getting together and causing a ruckus for the system. But then also it seems like they, if you do that, they call you a terrorist. Oh yeah. They're more like 
if you're organizing, then that's when they start to get worried and they shut it down as quickly as they can. Oh, yeah, that's where, I mean, one cynical way to look at it is the definition of a terrorist organization is just any kind of organization that the government doesn't like. I mean, yeah. one, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Right, because someone who does the exact same thing, who's just like this white guy that was an accountant, he's not called a terrorist. But he did the exact same thing as someone else who was maybe from another country, or they were going against... The narrative. Um, yeah, they they are considered a terrorist. And it's like the idea of a terrorist isn't our idea of a terrorist. It's something that's being sold to us. But... um. Yeah, there's there's always a, an inherent risk in organizing like that of being branded, you know, a, a terrorist or having repercussions. But I think that's where another where we can kind of draw inspiration from things like things like the Muslim Brotherhood or or political movements in the Middle East because we live in very like free and open and much less violent societies like in the United States and in North, North America. Well, at least openly. But I mean, it's like in a lot of countries around the world, it's like if you try and protest against something, you'll end up, you could end up getting killed or going to jail for a long time. Right. But we yeah. have a lot of things like freedom of speech and freedom of assembly in the United States. Uh, not to say that it's perfect or not to say that uh, there isn't still like, state oppression but i think you know we can kind of draw inspiration from people who are able to be brave and uh in less free societies mm. and take that as a as an inspiration to mobilize for good changes where we are yeah that's really interesting and so i mean it's none of it's black or white i think i think a lot of it is open to your perspective and there people should consider the nuance of the Muslim brotherhood and of, of mm. things like this. But, um, that's what makes it so interesting. Yeah. There's a lot more nuance than what we're led to believe. No, there's, there's two sides to every story. Only, only two. <laughs> <laughs> only two. <laughs> no, not three. You have to pick one side or, one the, or the other. other. You're either for us or against That's us. That's right. No, no. There's there's nuance. Nuance. Nuance, nuance. I like this quote. Uh, sure. I actually don't know who this person is, but their name is uh, Corey Doctorow. I, I like this quote. It's a little longer, but it says, We're going to fight this battle with everything we have, and we will probably lose. But then we will fight it again, and we will lose a little less. For this battle will win us many supporters, and then we'll lose again and again, and we will fight on. Because as hard as, as hard as it is to win by fighting, it's impossible to win by doing nothing. Mm. Yeah, I really like dun, that. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> well, I hope that was a, an interesting... Uh, an interesting conversation for you and for the listeners. I hope that I found it very interesting. I love, I need to learn more about these things. I'm completely ignorant. Well, every day we're a little less ignorant. <laughs> that is what they yeah. say. <laughs> Unless we do a heavy night of drinking, we forget everything. Right. 
then we kind of go backwards. But uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And I hope uh, that you all be with us for the next episode. We'll try to keep finding new and interesting. Well, not, not new. It's history. So by definition, <laughs> it's older. But we'll try and keep finding new material for y'all. Yeah. Visit our website, practicemakespodcast.com. Yes, please reach out. We love hearing from you. And ta-ta. Oh, follow our group, Practice Makes Podcast group. We're doing 10-day challenges. So Yes. Bye-bye. Bye.